0: How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, A Pastoral Response to Conspiracy Theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org we tend to think of matters spiritual as divorced from the physical world spirits after all have no physicality therefore things spiritual have nothing to do with things physical especially something like the human body but the truth is at least according to holy scripture You cannot separate those two, the spiritual and the physical, and you cannot have Christian salvation, the Christian teaching of salvation through Jesus Christ, without the physical. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about salvation and the body, Josh Pauling. He's a classical educator, vicar at All Saints Lutheran Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, a columnist for Modern Reformation and Salvo, And he's author of a forthcoming article for The Lutheran Witness magazine titled, Blessed is the Fruit of Your Womb. Josh, welcome back.
1: Hey, Todd. Good to talk with you.
0: What do you mean when you call the Bible an earthy, fleshy book?
1: What I mean is that it is profoundly rooted to the earth and to very physical things if we think all the way back to the creation story right where adam is formed from the dust of the ground everything is connected to physicality there's blood and dirt and all sorts of very raw material the Bible certainly doesn't sugarcoat or spiritualize things. If we like we said with Adam and the dirt, then Eve comes from Adam's rib. You have the eating of fruit uh, as part of the fall, the eating of the forbidden fruit. We have pillars of smoke and fire throughout the Old Testament, roasted lambs, bitter herbs. We could just go on and on with all of the very tangible physical things that God works through throughout both Old and New Testament.
0: How does the Bible tie salvation to the body in general?
1: Well, I think here we could start with creation itself. God creates Adam and Eve with bodies and breathes into them the breath of life. They're in a garden with bodily work to do, even before the fall. There's trees, like we said, to partake of fruit. God gives food to eat. And then there's also the forbidden fruit and so the experience of of life in the body has always been there this is something that makes christianity quite different from many other religions both in the ancient world and today many of them who really view the body as sort of a part of the fall or as something to be escaped from that has no place in the christian story from beginning to end and so that would be a, a definitely a place to start in the garden itself and then we could obviously go to christ uh, we see that he himself takes on flesh. He is the archetype of man, the last Adam. And if we think about what he does in his body, he redeems, heals, and restores other bodies, right? He uses spit and mud and he touches and speaks and interacts with with human beings in a, in a very visceral and real way. And then ultimately he himself dies and rises and promises resurrection to us. And then too if we think about the way that his salvation comes to us it all comes to us through earthly means words spoken water poured bread and wine received so really to sum it up we could say that biblical salvation from beginning to end is is not an offer to escape the body or end up in some disembodied realm whether we're thinking of some sort of eastern view or or a gnostic understanding rather the bible deeply anchors redemption itself to the body from beginning to end bodily means bodily realities that will ultimately culminate in the new jerusalem
0: how does the visitation account connected there to the nativity account highlight this relationship between salvation and the body
1: yeah the encounter between mary and elizabeth there's just so much there it's just such a rich encounter i love the ways we can sort of reflect on it and think about many layers of meaning here but what i really like to think about in relation to the body is how we have here john and jesus both inside the bodies of another john is inside elizabeth and jesus is inside of mary and here they are the greatest born of woman in the old covenant age john and then jesus in mary's womb the ancient of days the mystery of the ages and in those watery wombs they're celebrating john leaps for joy And that is just such a bodily experience, to think that God anchors His redemption to pregnancy and to the body in such an intimate and real way. You could reflect on that in unending ways. Do we see
0: this salvation-body relationship in the account of Mary's purification?
1: Yeah, I think so. We see here in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple. Luke writes that when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And Luke makes another comment, hearkening back to Exodus, that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. The wording in Exodus chapter 13 was as follows, whatever is the first to open the womb is mine, Yahweh said. So obviously, Jesus is literally the firstborn of Mary, and he here is participating in the uh, rituals and and laws of Israel. He's fulfilling them in his own person. But then there's also a a broader sense here that he is opening the womb in a way that sort of is a, a hallowing act for all of humanity, a hallowing of all births, a hallowing of life, and a hallowing of children. And we see here as well that he, as the firstborn of Mary, is also the firstborn of all creation. This is something that Paul frequently references in his epistles. We see him say in Colossians that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, that he is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in Romans, the firstfruits of the Spirit. So this language of firstborn and firstfruits figures quite prominently in the New Testament, connecting both Christ as the firstborn of Mary and of all creation to us, those who will follow in his train. Christ is ushering in a new creation, and he's bringing us with him.
0: How does the nativity narrative, you say, upend the current cultural narrative regarding individualism? What is that narrative?
1: Yeah. So this is, I think, an area where it's really interesting to think about the nativity in this way. What is the sort of narrative of the nativity and how does that relate to narratives that are common today? And so in the piece, I, I look at a few different narratives, one of them being autonomous individualism. So this is really one of the most common narratives that's uh, widespread in our society today. All sorts of phrases like be yourself, live your truth, all sorts of things are just constantly put into our ears with this idea of individualism and autonomy. But Christ here really in the nativity story is not an autonomous individual. He was born into a family. And just to think of that, that the God of the universe doesn't come as an autonomous individual. Uh, He comes in some mysterious way as one who is dependent first on the body of his mother in the womb, and then on uh, his parents and the family structure to grow and to become who he was. Obviously, this is the mystery of the ages, and exactly how this works is, is beyond our, our knowledge, but it certainly does counteract the narratives of autonomous individualism. If anybody could have been an autonomous individual, you think it would be the son of God, but he's not. Uh, he's brought into the world in the context of, of a family. Josh Pauling is our
0: guest. We're talking about salvation and the body. How does the nativity narrative also upend the current cultural narrative regarding power? Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc., by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology.
1: All theology is Christology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity.
0: Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana.
1: If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, My experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do.
0: Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thanks to Trinity Lutheran Church in Walton, Nebraska, for continuing their Issues Etc. sponsorship in 2024. Congregational sponsors pledge $1,000 from their mission or advertising budgets, and we promote these confessional Lutheran churches on the podcast at our website and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more about becoming a congregational sponsor with a one-page flyer on the support donate page at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385, become an Issues Etc. Congregational sponsor next year. We're talking about Salvation of the Body. Josh Pauling is our guest. He's author of a forthcoming article for the Lutheran Witness Magazine, Blessed is the Fruit of Your Womb. Josh, how does this nativity narrative also upend the current cultural narrative regarding power?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to reflect on here as well, for sure. The power dynamics narrative is certainly another one that is very common today, and we've talked about that before, and you've had many guests talk about that as well. But to summarize the power dynamics narrative, basically it's the idea of the oppressed versus the oppressor. You have those who are good guys and bad guys, and those with power and those without power. And usually this also has to do with the way we might think of identity politics in our society today with certain external visible characteristics figuring prominently or perhaps a sense of internal identity. But everything is really consumed with power. But the nativity really flips the script. Uh, It's the exact opposite. Christ willingly gives up power to take the form of a servant as we see in Philippians 2. So... In many ways, the nativity and the story of redemption overall really subverts the wisdom of the world when it comes to power. We could think of all sorts of things from the powerless babe in the manger to the stripped Christ on the cross, even the image of the victorious yet slaughtered lamb. It's really the God who wins by losing in some ways. And this is the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the world. But there's so many juxtapositions there that really upend this cultural narrative regarding power. And it's beautiful. It's surprising. And that's what we need. We need to be sort of jolted out of the things we see in our culture so frequently. And the story of the nativity certainly does that.
0: You say that Christ's birth hollows the family estate. What do you mean by that?
1: What I mean by that is a sort of an expansion of what we talked about there when it comes to autonomous individualism. That Jesus came into the world as part of a family, and he grew in wisdom and stature. Uh, he grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man, as Luke two fifty two says. So God places Himself <laughs> within this primary framework for human flourishing: the family, right? The family estate, and that's a, a hallowing of it. If God Himself Is placed in this in some mysterious way then certainly it's something for us to uphold and celebrate and embrace and it's in the family where we too can witness god's miraculous workings of both creation of new life and also redemption through the waters of baptism so it this is really the creational order of family that is upheld and honored in the nativity and then elevated in christ in a new way because christ unites around himself, not just a family by blood, but what we might call an eschatological family, where we are made children of God through faith. And that unites us in a way that even blood doesn't. It transcends lines of class and race and gender. And that is what we'll experience in the new heavens and new earth, right? Being part of this this family of God in a way that uh, will even transcend our natural families.
0: How does... Christ's birth established the goodness
1: of the body just to think of the fact that god himself has taken on flesh this is uh, the greatest statements of the goodness of the body and not only that he took on flesh you know at one time for some definite period that was going to come to an end but that he has taken on a body and still has his body he will permanently be god incarnate christ will always have his body And so when we think about our bodies, I think it's important to start with Christ's body as the archetype, as the vision, as the goal for our bodies, right? He sets the pattern, and he really inaugurates a new body paradigm that ultimately will lead us to resurrection and our bodies being glorified as well. So that is really a wonderful confession of the body. And again, it really subverts and and counters what we see in our culture today. Contemporary culture is really not quite sure what to do with the body a lot of times. For some people, they think it's like a shell to be discarded. If we think about um, what is happening more and more when, when somebody dies, there seems to be a denial of the goodness of the body with certain practices when it comes to death. Or if we think about what people are doing to try to change the body in accord with their own internal sense of self, that it's something to be modified or molded. In accordance with my own desires. In other areas, the body is sexualized or objectified. And then for others, it's just material, something to be discarded, something that really doesn't have inherent value. But the church has always countered these various views of the body. And if we think of, you know, in the early church, groups like the Gnostics or the Docetists, Gnostics seeking liberation from the body, or the Docetists who claimed that Christ only seemed to have a body. The Church has always grounded its responses in the wonder of the Incarnation and the Nativity.
0: Finally, Josh, you quote from Irenaeus of Lyon, the glory of God is a living man, the life of man consists in beholding God. How does that apply here?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Irenaeus is one of my favorite Church fathers, and I think he really just so clearly grasped the centrality of the Incarnation and what it means for the human person and i think a lot of the early church fathers are really helpful on these topics of the goodness of the body and the destiny of the body and how our body is connected to christ's body there's so much there in irenaeus and athanasius and others but to maybe summarize this quote or connect it here to what we were talking about i think one of the ways this quote is best captured is is with this short gloss of the quote which goes like this the glory of god is man fully alive and if we think about that who is man fully alive then well, that ultimately is christ fully god and fully man and christ then brings us with him again into this new body paradigm and pattern that was lost in the garden but that he has inaugurated and that ultimately will be fully achieved in the new heavens and the new earth
0: josh pauling is a classical educator vicar at all saints lutheran church in charlotte north carolina a columnist for modern reformation and salvo author of a forthcoming article for the lutheran witness magazine titled blessed is the fruit of your womb josh Thank you. Thank you, Todd. In hour two of issues, etc., we will be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, the 24th Sunday after Trinity, the gospel reading in Matthew 9, a girl restored to life and a woman healed. Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy will be our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned.
1: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.